Um, did you see notes out there for this afternoon's sermon? Did anybody see them? Robert, would you mind getting them? They might be in the drawer uh, underneath the credenza there, and if anybody wants them, uh, just raise your hand when he comes back through. The notes are on the table? They are there. Okay, they're on the top there, uh, Robert. Yep, there's hands going up, so thank you. Okay, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, we find this, and it's in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verses 7 through 9. Deuteronomy 8, beginning with verse 7. Where the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and whose hills, out of whose hills you can dig copper. The area around Galilee was a beautiful example of what the Lord had said concerning the promised land and its fruitfulness. As one scholar put it, the lakes of this province, with their blue transparent waters, contributed not a little to the charming beauty of the landscapes. Merle wrote a book about the area, and particularly about Galilee, and uh, of various things about the, the area. When the Savior, Jesus, walked the shores of Galilee, the waters were described by contemporaries as crystal clear. And the rabbis of the time couldn't praise the Galilee enough. Jehovah, they said, had created seven seas, and of these he had chosen the Sea of Gennesareth, or Galilee, <coughs> excuse me, as his one special delight. Clear brooks and streams run into the sea, the Sea of Galilee. The six cool fountains flow into it. That's the actual name of streams that, uh, that uh, came into the Galilee. And they were to, called the cool springs to differentiate them from the warm springs. So around the town of Tiberias, to the north of Tiberias, cool springs ran into the Galilee. To the south of the city of Tiberias, warm springs ran in. And the so-called hundred brooks flowed out from it, watering fertile fields in just one area of its vast shoreline. So you look at this lake that's about 12 miles by 6 miles, and in one small area of the lake you have a hundred brooks flowing out from the Sea of Galilee out into the countryside and into the fields. In the days of our Savior, the Sea of Galilee was littered with boats, fishing boats, ferries, and even pleasure craft. It's hard for us, I think, to think in those terms. This, this lake just covered with boats, uh, all kinds, fishing, ferries going back and forth across the lake. 
<coughs> excuse me, and people just out for fun on the water. It's amazing how little things change in some regards. Once when Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, was carrying on an action, he was actually a military leader as well, he was carrying out an action against the town of Tiberias, which is on the Sea of Galilee, he was able to gather 280 ships in very short order in which to assault that little town. We don't read in scripture of any sea battles on uh, the lake, but more than one occurred there. The Romans marched against Tiberius at one time by land, and the defenders of the city prepared for the Roman attack by gathering a large fleet and putting it just offshore. And when the Romans descended on the town of Tiberius, the defenders of the city retreated to their ships. And from there, they held out and resisted the Romans for a long time. And uh, six to 7,000 men were killed in that battle on the Lake of Galilee. When we add to the fishermen, the crowd of shipbuilders, the many boats of traffic, pleasure, and passage, we see that the whole basin must have been a focus of life and energy. The surface of the lake constantly dotted with the white sails of vessels flying before the mountain gusts as the beach sparkled with the houses and palaces, the synagogues and the temples of the Jewish or Roman inhabitants. So with that background, just picture your savior, Jesus, walking on the shores of this extraordinary location as our narrative here opens. Matthew gives us an important introduction to the events that are just about to transpire. So if you look over in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, Matthew says this, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12. Now when he, that is Jesus, heard that John, that's the forerunner, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, just pause for a moment and imagine what it must have been like when these scenes fell on the physical eyes of the Savior in his incarnation. Consider first, as you think about that, that he had looked with a divine eye upon the beauties of heaven and earth. We can't even imagine in our mind's eye the true glories of heaven. We just can't do it. It's beyond our imagination. All we really know is what's been conveyed to us in the scriptures by visions given by God to various men as to the grandeur of it all. One of these comes down to us through the prophecy of Ezekiel, who 
is watching these awesome, glorious creatures, uh, living creatures in this vision. And these creatures are in heaven, and they have vast wings, and they have powerful movement. And then Ezekiel says in Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 25 this, And there came a voice from above, the expanse over their heads, that is over the heads of these living creatures, when they stood still and let down their wings. And above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated upon the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. It wasn't an actual person, but it had the general appearance of a person. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. So you think of a, a cylinder, perhaps, in which a fire has been lit, and that cylinder is glowing with, uh, with heat from the, from the fire within it. And downward, from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him. He, he can't, he's struggling here to find words to even express this. It just looked like this brightness, like the appearance, he says, of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So it's, it's got this brightness, but it's the brightness, that, like the brightness of a rainbow. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. So what Ezekiel is saying, when I just saw this picture, this representation of the glories of heaven, my natural reaction was to fall on my face. I just, I couldn't even look at this. I, I couldn't stand to, to, to be there and look at it. And so he just fell on his face. Now, a description like this really challenges our imagination. It increases our wonder. And I think it excites our expectation because we're going to see these beauties. We're going to behold them with our own eyes. But these beauties, and even more, that human language cannot describe, were common things to the Lord Jesus Christ before his incarnation. These are the things that surrounded him. They were a part of his existence, his eternal existence before the creation of the world. So while the bright sight of sunshine glistening off the blue sea of the Galilee, the Galilee dotted with white sails and reflecting the sky and the shoreline around it, so impressed the rabbis that it caused them to wax eloquently about the beautiful body of water, it surely had a different sort of beauty to the Son of God. Uh, what impresses us uh, would not have impressed him in the same way. The one who had those things in heaven and enjoyed those things in heaven 
even though this would be a beautiful scene. Then consider this. As he looked out over these seaside scenes, everything that his eyes took in as he did that, he had made. He had created all of them. And it was all being sustained by him. And it all belonged to him by divine right. And throughout the Gospels, we see him exercising his divine right over it all. When he wants to, he walks on the Sea of Galilee. He just walks on it when he wants to. He stills the waves. The, his disciples are struggling just to survive in this, in this storm. And he just says, peace be still, and it's all over. He multiplies to feed the thousands the fish from the, from the Sea of Galilee. And at other times, he summons them. He has the disciples throw their net into the sea, and he says to the fish, go there and fill that net. And they do it. He plagues the demons who haunt the place. And he gathers his elect sheep out of the multitudes that sail on the waters and that live on its shores. In all those things, he's exercising his divine right as the creator and as the savior. These things are all his. And when he looks out over them, even with his incarnate eyes, everything he sees, he made. Everything he sees, he sustains. Everything he sees obeys his command. And again, our imagination is strained. When we try to grasp what it must have been like for the Son of Man to view all of this through our eyes. To look on that lake, sitting in the lap of those surrounding mountains, and being able to say, I made all this. To look on a school of dashing fish moving through the waters in a vast school and be able to say, those are mine. I made them. And to see the busy population of men and women hurrying here and lounging there, the children laughing and playing and saying again, I made all these. They're all mine. I think that stretches our, our ability to comprehend this moment. We, we read about the Savior walking along the shore, but it's good for us to stop and think, what does that mean? What was that like? In John chapter 1 and verse 3, John himself says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16 and 17, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All declaring the fact that he has this kind of authority and power over the things that he's looking at with his incarnate eyes on the shores of Galilee. Lastly, he's also seeing with our eyes the sin 
and the sorrow that has marred his beautiful creation. Where bountiful orchards and fields should be bursting with food, there are thorns and thistles, and people are hungry. Just beyond the borders of the sea, there are areas that are dry and lifeless. Where there should be robust health and strength, people are sick and weak. Where the hearts and minds of men and women and little children ought to be looking out on what he's made and glorifying him, most are looking on themselves. And not far from this Sea of Galilee, not far, just a little bit north of it, there's a whole cliffside full of niches filled with idols that men have been worshiping. Most are looking on themselves and not him. Where the adoration of God in in sweet and joyous communion should be enjoyed, there's idolatry, there are false teachers, and demon possession. In this world that he pronounced good, there's evil, sorrow, oppression, hunger, and death because of the sin of man. Even while standing on the sunny shores of the Galilee, in the bright Middle Eastern sun, he could see clearly the darkness of sin and death that enveloped this world. Now, with those thoughts all in mind, let's look at the text. Mark chapter 1, verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Matthew puts it this way. This is Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. Matthew says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, when we read this scene, a very natural picture is set before us. Jesus walking along the seashore of the Galilee. And there's something very touching about that image. Uh, He who makes the clouds his chariots, shuffling along the beach by the Sea of Galilee. It's it's just a, a touching thing. And it might seem like a leisurely thing to do. And if you ever spend any time on the seashore, at the seashore, you see lots of people walking up and down the beach. And they're just leisurely spending time. But Jesus was, as always, about his father's business. It was that very impact of sin on the creation, and more specifically on men and women and children that fell upon his eyes wherever he looked, the lost souls walking in darkness and the shadow of death that he was here to save. And when he's walking along the seashore of Galilee, 
that task, that calling is ever with him. John said of Jesus that in him was life and the life was the light of men. And Jesus himself declared in John chapter 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You remember that the scripture tells us as we're introduced to the scene that Jesus goes into Galilee to fulfill the scripture. What scripture? The scripture that says that the light is coming to the darkness in Naphtali and Zebulun around the Galilee that the light is coming there to shine. And Jesus, even while he's walking on the shore, is bringing light into the scene. The great light encountered the great darkness. The far off ones were visited by him who gathers together the outcasts of Israel. Our Lord courts not those who glory in their light, but those who pine in their darkness. He comes with heavenly life, not to those who boast of their own life and energy, but to those who are under condemnation and who feel the shades of death, shutting them out from light and hope, says Spurgeon. So while the scene seems tranquil and even relaxed, what's the Savior doing? He's looking about. He's looking about. And he sees the two brothers already known to him, Simon, Peter, and Andrew. These two men have been elected by God to be among the first to preach the gospel of salvation after his resurrection. The message of redeeming grace, which brings the light of life to men and women. Jesus was introduced to them by John the Forerunner about a year earlier. So when Jesus looks out, he's looking and he looks out with his incarnate eyes and he sees these two men. What does he see? Priests in all their priestly garb, making sacrifices and engaged in holy activities. A group of perfectly turned out Pharisees with all the self-adorning accoutrements of their status as Pharisees? Does he see scribes walking bent over as they scan and study the scrolls of the great rabbis? Does he see men of financial means and influence? Does he see political leaders with the reins of government in their hands? No, he sees two men with their garments rolled up, throwing fishing nets into the water, like hundreds of others along the seashore. David Dixon, in his commentary on Matthew, observes, his calling of so mean, or that is plain and ordinary men as fishers, shows the freedom of his grace in choosing of his instruments, manifests the power of his kingdom, who by such weak means can subdue the world, and declares the depth of his wisdom, who provides so for his own honor, that the instrument shall not carry away the glory of the work. Let me break that down a little bit for you. 
He says, first of all, it shows the freedom of his grace. The freedom of his grace to, to attach itself to whoever he pleases, to whoever he cho- chooses. He's not looking out and saying, where can I find somebody who looks like they'll do this job well? I'm certainly not here, knee-deep in the sea, throwing fishnets. I've got to find somebody better than that. There's got to be somebody better than that for, that for this important task. It's not like that. His free grace can attach itself to anyone, no matter how weak, no matter how mean, as, as it's described here. You remember the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, to consider your calling. This is verse 26. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's the free exercise of his grace. He can save who he pleases according to his own power and grace. Background doesn't matter. Heritage doesn't matter. Influence doesn't matter. It's just his grace. Secondly, He said it makes plain, Dixon said it makes plain, the power of his kingdom. You were looking around at this time in history, and you were thinking, who can I get to overturn the world? Who can I get to overturn the whole world? Oh, these two guys, they'll do it. (laughs) These two fishermen here who are throwing nets into the water and catching smelly fish, they'll be the ones. It's... It's evidence of his power and the power of his kingdom that he can pick the meanest of servants like this and then use them in extraordinary ways, as we see in this context, to overturn the world. Peter goes from being a kind of questionable character in his resilience to the one who stands in front of the very people who executed the Lord Jesus Christ and says to them, you murdered him. And he does it with courage. Where did that come from? Not from Peter, but from Christ working in him. In Zechariah chapter 4, 6, chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord says to his prophet, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's how these things are done. And then lastly, he says, it displays the depth of his wisdom. Um, It's the Lord who does it. And he doesn't, by doing it this way, no one can receive the glory of it but him. When you look at the scene, you think about, well, what did Peter do? And what did Andrew do? And what did John do? And what did James do? Well, everything they did, they did by the power of Christ who chose them. The honor and the glory comes to Christ himself. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 5, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. 
I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And to him goes all the praise. Now he doesn't see anybody famous, anybody powerful, anybody influential. He sees two common laborers, fishermen, casting their nets into the sea. And as that scene comes into his vision, he calls them to a much greater vision. He calls them to be fishers of men. He looks on these men because they're the ones who will carry on his earthly ministry after he's gone. He's not choosing them because of uh, any potential he perceives in them, but with an eye toward what he intends to do by and through them. Dixon says, such as Christ calls, he furnishes them with all furniture for the calling and promises unto them good success. He looks on these men and he sees what Hendrickson calls the links between himself and his church. Did he know when he looked on Peter what a rough time of it Peter was going to have? Yes. But he was already prepared to keep poor Peter safe from himself and from his enemies and from the devil. And his election of you and me is exactly the same. He doesn't look on us and call us to himself because of the potential he sees in us, but because of what he intends to do with us and through us. It's not us, it's him. And he looks on us with that gracious love and calls us to himself to use us for himself. It must not escape us that by means of the promise I will make you fishers of men. Jesus sets the seal of his approval upon the words of the inspired author of the book of Proverbs. He who wins souls is wise. Confirms Daniel 12.3. They that turn many to righteousness shall shine as the stars forever and ever. Adds his own authority to Paul's striking statement. To all I became all, that in one way or another I may, sa I may save some. And anticipates his own glorious invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. William Henderson says, all of that is in this vision of Christ as he looks at these two men. This is all going to be fulfilled in and through them and those who would follow them. Before the eyes of Jesus lay the Sea of Galilee, teeming with his fishes. He also saw a sea of hopeless and helpless individuals in need of grace. He looked upon two humble fishermen casting nets out over the shallows in an attempt to catch a few fish. But Jesus sees not just fishes, but the servants he will employ in the greatest work the world has ever known. And he will make them fishers of men. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity this afternoon to contemplate the world through Christ's eyes. And we pray, Lord, that it will first give us confidence and, and joy in our salvation, knowing that we are chosen not because of anything in us, but because of him. We pray, Lord, that it will also give us a fresh sense of our duty to go out and to be fishers of men.
to cast the net wide. And Lord, let you summon those who are yours into it, just as you did on the Sea of Galilee. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to think about these things this afternoon. And we ask you to seal them to our hearts and use them for your glory in our lives. In Jesus' name.